The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams The podcast versions of the original Facebook Live readings during the coronavirus outbreak by Matthew Ogden, The Bearded Wit. Please bear in mind that as Facebook Live recordings, these are rough and ready, there are mistakes, there are a few trip-ups here and there, and there is laughter from the reader as he goes through and follows the humour himself along with you, the listener. We hope you enjoy listening to these and share liberally. Part 2 Before we begin, I'd like to ask you to seriously consider becoming a patron of The Bearded Wit by going to patreon.com forward slash thebeardedwit. You can support me from as little as $5 a month, which is essentially a cup of coffee, uh, and that will mean that I will be able to continue producing this material and other podcasts that I do, and it would mean the world to me to have you um, know that you've got my back on this. Uh, I love producing this material for people, and it's been a huge pleasure for me to do this, uh, which basically starts started as a project for family and friends right back at the beginning of March last year uh, when the COVID-19 virus was really beginning to kick in. It was a way of basically connecting friends and family all over the world who were finding it a bit difficult as we all did and it's grown into something where I've got a lot of people listening all over the world. It would mean the world to me if you could take the time just to pop over to uh, patreon.com forward slash the bearded wit sign up from as little as five dollars a month as i say uh it's a cup of coffee it would mean the world to me because the more of you guys you fabulous people out there that do it the more i'm able to do more of this stuff for you on an ongoing basis no obligation but if you can i would be so deeply grateful Also, if you could take a moment to pop over to Facebook and uh, give The Bearded Wit a like and follow, uh, and also go over to my new YouTube channel as well, um, just search for The Bearded Wit, uh, and subscribe. Uh, I'll be putting all of the live readings slightly edited um, and cleaned up a bit uh, onto that uh, over the coming weeks. Um, But yeah, join up, uh, get involved, like, share, follow, subscribe, do all the usual social media things. Okay, on with the reading. Thanks very much, everyone. Far away, on the opposite spiral arm of the galaxy, 500,000 light-years from the star Sol, Zephod Beeblebrox, president of the Imperial Galactic Government, sped across the seas of Damagran, his ion-drive delta boat winking and flashing in the Damagran sun. Damagran the Hot, Damagran the Remote, Damagran the Almost Totally Unheard Of, Damagran, Secret Home of the Heart of Gold. The boat sped on across the water. It would be some time before it reached its destination because Damagran is such an inconveniently arranged planet. It consists of nothing but middling to large desert islands, separated by very pretty but annoyingly wide stretches of ocean. The boat sped on. Because of this topographical awkwardness, Damagran has always remained a deserted planet. This is why the Imperial Galactic Government chose Damagran 
for the Heart of Gold project because it was so deserted and the Heart of Gold project was so secret. The boat zipped and skipped across the sea, the sea that lay between the main islands of the only archipelago of any useful size on the whole planet. Zephod Beeblebrox was on his way from the tiny spaceport on Easter Island. The name was an entirely meaningless coincidence. In galactic speak, Easter means small, flat and light brown. He sped to the heart of Gold Island, which by another meaningless coincidence was called France. One of the side effects of work on the Heart of Gold was a whole string of pretty meaningless coincidences. But it was not in any way a coincidence that today, the day of culmination of the project, the great day of unveiling, the day that the Heart of Gold was finally to be introduced to a marvelling galaxy, was also a great day of culmination for Zaphod Beeblebrox. It was for the sake of this day that he had first decided to run for the presidency, a decision which had sent shockwaves of astonishment throughout the imperial galaxy. Zaphod Beeblebrox, president. Not the Zaphod Beeblebrox. Not the president. Many had seen it as clinching proof that the whole of known creation had finally gone bananas. And then Donald Trump got elected. Doesn't say that name. Zaphod grinned and gave the boat an extra kick of speed. Zaphod Beeblebrox, adventurer, ex-hippie, good-timer, crook, quite possibly, Manic self-publicist, terribly bad at personal relationships, often thought to be completely out to lunch. President? No one had gone bananas, not in that way at least. Only six people in the entire galaxy understood the principle upon which the government, the, the galaxy was government, on which the galaxy was governed. And they knew that once Zaphod Beeblebrox had announced his intention to run as president, it was more or less a fait accompli. He was ideal presidency fodder. What they completely failed to understand was why Zaphod Beeblebrox was doing it. He banked sharply, shooting a wild wall of water at the sun. Today was the day. Today was the day when they would realise what Zaphod had been up to. Today was also... Sorry, today was what Zaphod Beeblebrox's presidency was all about. Today was also his 200th birthday, but that was just another meaningless coincidence. As he skipped his boat across the seas of Damagran, he smiled quietly to himself about what a wonderful, exciting day it was going to be. He relaxed and spread his two arms lazily along the seat back. He steered with an extra arm he'd recently had fitted, just beneath the right one, in order to help improve his ski boxing. Hey, he cooed to himself. You're a real cool boy, you.
but his nerves sang a song shriller than a dog whistle. The island of France was about 20 miles long, five miles across the middle, sandy and crescent-shaped. In fact, it seemed to exist not so much as an island in its own right, as simply a means of defining the sweep and curve of a huge bay. This impression was heightened by the fact that the inner coastline of the crescent consisted almost entirely of steep cliffs. From the top of the cliff, the land sloped slowly down five miles to the opposite shore. On top of the cliffs stood a reception committee. It consisted in large part of the engineers and researchers who'd built the Heart of Gold. Mostly humanoid, but here and there there were a few reptiloid um, atom. Excuse me. Very loud vehicle going past outside. Here and there there were a few reptiloid atomineers, two or three green sylph-like maxi good god maxi megaliticians, an octopodic psychoterist, and two and a hoovaluvu. A hoovaluvu is a superintelligent shade of the color blue. All except the Hoovalu. Sorry, I'm going to try that again because that's really quite a mouthful, that, that one. So, here we go. It consisted in a large part of the engineers and researchers who'd built the Heart of Gold. Mostly humanoid, but here and there there were a few reptiloid atomineers, two or three green sylph- sylph-like mexi-megalagalic... mexi Mexi-megaliticians, an octopodic psychoculturist, or two, and a huluvu. A huluvu is a superintelligent shade of the colour blue. All except the huluvu were resplendent in their multicoloured ceremonial lab coats. The huluvu had been temporarily refracted into a freestanding prism for the occasion. There was a mood of immense excitement thrilling through all of them. Together and between them, they'd gone to and beyond the furthest limits of physical laws, restructured the fundamental fabric of matter, strained, twisted and broken the laws of possibility and impossibility, but still the greatest excitement of all seemed to be met, seemed to be to meet a man with an orange sash around his neck. An orange sash was what the president of the galaxy traditionally wore, rather than orange spray tan. It might not even have made much difference to them if they'd known exactly how much power the president of the galaxy actually wielded. None at all. Only six people in the galaxy knew that the job of the galactic president was not to wield power, but to attract attention away from it. Zaphod Beeblebrox was amazingly good at his job. The crowd gasped, dazzled by sun and seamanship, as the presidential speedboat zipped around the headland into the bay. It flashed and shone as it came skating over the sea in wide, skidding turns. In fact, it didn't need to touch the water at all because it was supported on a hazy cushion of ionised atoms. But just for effect, it was fitted with thin fin blades which could be lowered into the water. They slashed sheets of water hissing into the air 
carved deep gashes into the sea, which swayed crazily and sank back, foaming into the boat's, boat's wake as it careened across the bay. Zaphod loved effect. It was what he was best at. He twisted the wheel sharply. The boat slewed round in a wide, scything skid beneath the cliff face and dropped to rest lightly on the rocking waves. Within seconds, he ran out onto the deck and waved and grinned at over three billion people. The three billion people weren't actually there, but they watched his every gesture through the eyes of a small robot Tri-D camera, which hovered obsequiously in the air nearby. The antics of the president always made amazingly popular Tri-D. That was what they were for. He grinned again. Three billion and six people didn't know it, but today would be a bigger antic than anyone had ever bargained for. The robot camera homed in for a close-up on the more popular of his two heads, and he waved again. He was roughly humanoid in appearance, except for the extra head and third arm. His tousled fair hair stuck out in random directions. His blue eyes glinted with something completely unidentifiable, and his chins were almost always unshaven. A twenty-foot-high transparent globe floated next to his boat, rolling and bobbing, glistening in the brilliant sun. Inside it floated, inside it floated a wide semicircular sofa, upholstered in glorious red leather. The more the globe bobbed and rolled, the more the sofa stayed perfectly still, steady as an unupholstered rock. Again all done as much for effect as anything. Zaphod stepped through the wall of the globe and relaxed on the sofa. He spread his two arms along the back and with the third brushed some dust idly off his knee. His heads looked about, smiling. He put his feet up. At any moment, he thought, he might scream. Water boiled up beneath the bubble. It seethed and spouted. The bubble surged up into the air, bobbing and rolling on the water spout. Up, up, up it climbed, throwing stilts of light at the cliff. Up it surged on the jet, the water falling from beneath it, crashing back into the sea hundreds of feet below. Zaphod smiled, picturing himself. A thoroughly ridiculous form of transport but a thoroughly beautiful one. At the top of the cliff, the globe wavered for a moment, tipped onto a railed ramp, rolled down it to a small concave platform and riddled to a halt. To tremendous applause, Zaphod Beeblebrox stepped out of the bubble, his orange sash blazing in the light. The president of the galaxy had arrived. He waited for the applause to die down, and then raised his hand in greeting. Hi, he said. A government spider sidled up to him and attempted to press a copy of his prepared speech into his hands. Pages three to seven of the original version were, at the moment, floating soggily on the Damagrand Sea some five, five miles out into the bay. 
Pages one and two had been salvaged by a Damagran frond-crested eagle and had already become incorporated into an extraordinary new form of nest which the eagle had invented. It was constructed largely of papier-mâché, and it was virtually impossible for a newly hatched baby eagle to break out of it. The Damagran frond-crested eagle had heard of the notion of survival of the species, but wanted no truck with it. Zephod Beeblebrox would not be needing his set speech, and he gently deflected the one being offered him by the spider. Hi, he said again. Everyone beamed at him, or at least nearly everyone. He singled out Trillian from the crowd. Trillian was a girl that Zaphod had picked up recently whilst visiting a planet, just for fun, incognito. She was slim, darkish, humanoid, with long waves of black hair, a full mouth, an odd little knob of a nose, and ridiculously brown eyes. With her red headscarf knotted in that particular way, and her long flowing silky brown dress, she looked vaguely Arabic. Not that anyone there had ever heard of an Arab, of course. The Arabs had very recently ceased to exist, and even when they had existed, they were 500,000 light years from Damagran. Trillian wasn't anybody in particular, or so Zaphod claimed. She just went around with him rather a lot, and told him what she thought of him. Hi, honey, he said to her. She flashed him a quick, tight smile and looked away. Then she looked back for a moment and smiled more warmly. But by this time, he was looking at something else. Hi, he said, to a small knot of creatures from the press who were standing nearby, wishing that he would stop saying, Hi and get on with the quotes. He grinned at them, particularly because he knew that in a few moments he would be giving them one hell of a quote. The next thing he said, though, was not a lot of use to them. One of the officials of the party had irritably decided that the president was clearly not in a mood to read the deliciously turned speech that he had written for him, and had flipped the switch on the remote control device in his pocket. Away in front of them, a huge white dome that bulged against the sky cracked down the middle, split and slowly folded itself down into the ground. Everyone gasped, although they had known perfectly well it was going to do that because they'd built it that way. Beneath it lay uncovered a huge starship, 150 metres long shaped like a sleek running shoe, perfectly white and mind-bogglingly beautiful. At the heart of it, unseen... Sorry. Everything can shut up. Sorry about that. Where were we? Right. At the heart of it, unseen, lay a small gold box which carried within it the most brain-wrenching device ever conceived. A device which made this starship unique in the history of the galaxy. A device after which the ship had been named the Heart of Gold. Wow, 
said Zaphod Beeblebrox to the Heart of Gold. There wasn't much else he could say. He said it again, because he knew it would annoy the press. Wow. The crowd turned their faces back towards him expectantly. He winked at Trillian, who raised her eyebrows and widened her eyes at him. She knew what he was about to say, and thought him a terrible show-off. That is really amazing, he said. That really is truly amazing. That is so amazingly amazing. I think I'd like to steal it. A marvellous presidential quote. Absolutely true to form. The crowd laughed appreciatively. The newsmen gleefully punched buttons on their sub-ether newsmatics and the president grinned. As he grinned, his heart screamed unbearably and he fingered the small paralyzomatic bomb that nestled quietly in his pocket. Finally, he could bear it no more. He lifted his heads up to the sky let out a wild whoop in major thirds, threw the bomb to the ground, and ran forward through the sea of suddenly frozen, beaming smiles. Quick slurp of tea. Five. Prostetnik Vogon Jeltz was not a pleasant sight, even for other Vogons. His highly domed nose rose high above the small piggy forehead. His, his dark green rubbery skin was thick enough for him to play the game of Vogon civil service politics and play it well, and waterproof enough for him to survive indefinitely at sea depths of up to a thousand feet, with no ill effects. Not that he ever went swimming, of course. His busy schedule would not allow it. He was the way he was because billions of years ago, when the Vogons had first crawled out of the sluggish primeval seas of Vogsphere, and had lain panting and heaving on the planet's virgin shores, when the first rays of the bright young Vauxhall, Vauxhall sun had shone across them that morning, it was as if the forces of evolution had simply given up on them there and then, and turned aside in disgust and written them off as an ugly and unfortunate mistake. They never evolved again. They should never have survived. The fact that they did is some kind of tribute to the thick-willed, slugged-brained stubbornness of these creatures. Evolution, they said to themselves, who needs it? And what nature refused to do for them, they simply did without, until such time as they were able to rectify the grosser anatomical inconveniences with surgery. Meanwhile, the natural forces on the planet Vogsphere had been working overtime to make up for their earlier blunder. They brought forth scintillating jeweled scuttling crabs, which the Vogons ate, smashing their shells with iron mallets. Tall, aspiring trees of breathtaking slenderness and colour, which the Vogons cut down and burnt the crab meat with. 
elegant, gazelle-like creatures with silken coats and dewy eyes, which the Vogons would catch and sit on. They were no use as transport because their backs would snap instantly. But the Vogons sat on them anyway. Thus, the planet Vogsphere whiled away the unhappy millennia until the Vogons suddenly discovered the principles of interstellar travel. Within a few short Vog years, every last Vogon had migrated to the Megabrantis Cluster, the political hub of the galaxy, and now formed the immensely powerful backbone of the Galactic Civil Service. They had attempted to acquire learning, they have attempted to acquire style and social grace. But in most respects, the modern Vogon is little different from his primitive forebears. Every year, they import 27,000 scintillating jewel-scuttling crabs from their native planet and while away a happy drunken night, smashing them to bits with iron mallets. Prostetnik Vogon Jeltz was a fairly typical Vogon, in that he was thoroughly vile. Also, he did not like hitchhikers. Somewhere in a small, dark cabin buried deep in the intestines of Prostetnik Vogon Jelt's flagship, a small match flared nervously. The owner of the match was not a Vogon, but he knew all about them and was right to be nervous. His name was Ford Prefect. He looked about the cabin but could see very little. Strange, monstrous shadows loomed and leaped with the tiny flickering flame, but all was quiet. He breathed a silent thank you to the Dentrasis. The Dentrasis are an unruly tribe of Gormons, a wild but pleasant bunch whom the Vogons had recently taken to employing as catering staff on their long-haul fleets, on the strict understanding that they kept themselves very much to themselves. This suited the Dentrasis fine because they loved Vogon money, which is one of the hardest currencies in space, but loathed the Vogons themselves. The only sort of Vogon a Dentrassi liked to see was an annoyed Vogon. It was because of this tiny piece of information that Ford Prefect was not now a whiff of hydrogen, ozone and carbon monoxide. He heard a slight groan. By the light of the match he saw a heavy shape moving slightly on the floor. Quickly he shook the match out, reached into his pocket found what he was looking for and took it out. He ripped it open and shook it. He crouched on the floor, and the shape moved again. Ford Prefect said, I bought some peanuts. Arthur Dent moved and groaned again, muttering incoherently. Here, have some, urged Ford, shaking the packet again. If you've never been through a matter transference beam before, you've probably lost some salt and protein. The beer you had should have cushioned your system a bit. <sighs> said Arthur Dent. He opened his eyes. It's dark, he said. Yes, said Ford Prefect. It's dark. No light 
said Arthur Dent. Dark. No, no light. One of the things Ford Prefect had always found hardest to understand about humans was their habit of continually stating and repeating the very, very obvious, as in, it's a nice day, or you're very tall, or oh dear, you seem to have fallen down a thirty-foot well, are you all right? At first, Ford had formed a theory to account for this strange behaviour. If human beings didn't keep exercising their lips, he thought, their mouths probably seized up. After a few months' consideration and observation, he abandoned this theory in favour of a new one. If they don't keep exercising their lips, he thought, their brains start working. After a while, he abandoned this one as well as being obstructively cynical and decided He quite liked human beings after all, but he always always remained desperately worried about the terrible number of things they didn't know about. Yes, he agreed with Arthur. No light. He helped Arthur to some peanuts. How do you feel? he asked him. Like a military academy, said Arthur. Bits of me keep on passing out. Ford stared at him blankly in the darkness. If I ask you where the hell we were, said Arthur weakly, would I regret it? Ford stood up. We're safe, he said. Oh, good, said Arthur. We're in a small galley cabin, said Ford, in one of the spaceships of the Vogon constructor fleet. Ah, said Arthur, this is obviously some strange usage of the word safe that I wasn't previously aware of. Ford struck another match to help him search for a light switch. Monstrous shadows leaped and loomed again. Arthur struggled to his feet and hugged himself apprehensively. Hideous alien shapes seemed to throng about him. The air was thick with musty smells which sidled into his lungs without identifying themselves and a low, irritating hum kept his brain from focusing. How how did we get here? he asked, shivering slightly. We hitched a lift, said Ford. Excuse me? said Arthur. Are you are you trying to tell me that we just stuck out our thumbs and some green bug-eyed monster stuck his head out and said, Hi, fellas, hop right in. I can take you as far as the Basingstoke roundabout. Well, said Ford, the thumbs and electronic sub-ether signalling device, the roundabouts at Barnard Star, six light years away, but otherwise, that's more or less right. And the bug-eyed monster? is green yes fine said arthur when can i go home you can't said ford prefect and found the light switch shade your eyes he said and turned it on even ford was surprised good grief said arthur Is this really the interior of a flying saucer? 
Prostechnic Vogon Jeltz heaved his unpleasant green body around the control bridge. He always felt vaguely irritable after demolishing populated planets. He wished that someone would come and tell him that it was <clears throat> sorry. He wished that someone would come and tell him that it was all wrong so that he could shout at them and feel better. He flopped as heavily as he could onto his control seat in the hope that it would break and give him something to be genuinely angry about. But it only gave a complaining sort of creak. Go away, he shouted at a young Vogon guard who entered the bridge at that moment. The guard vanished immediately, feeling rather relieved. He was glad it wouldn't now be him who delivered the report they'd just received. The report was an official release which said that a wonderful new form of spaceship drive was at this moment being unveiled at a government research base on Damagran, which would henceforth make all hyperspatial express routes unnecessary. Another door slid open, but this time the Vogon captain didn't shout because it was the door from the galley quarters where the Dentrassi prepared his meals. A meal would be most welcome. A huge, furry creature bounded through the door with his lunch tray. It was grinning like a maniac. Prostechnic Vogon Jeltz was delighted. He knew that when Dentrassi looked like that, and that that pleased with itself, there was something going on somewhere on the ship that he could get very angry indeed about. Ford and Arthur stared around them. Well, what do you think? said Ford. It's a bit squalid, isn't it? Ford frowned at the grubby mattresses, unwashed cups, and unidentifiable bits, bit, un uh, unidentifiable bits of smelly alien underwear that lay around the cramped cabin. Well, this is a working ship, you see, said Ford. These are the Dentrassi sleeping quarters. I thought you said they were called Vogon or something. Yes, said Ford. The Vogons run the ship. The Dentrassi are the cooks. They let us on board. I'm confused, said Arthur. Here, have a look at this, said Ford. He sat down on one of the mattresses and rummaged about in his satchel. Arthur prodded the mattress nervously and then sat on it himself. In fact, he had very little to be nervous about, because all mattresses grown up in the swamps of Squanchellus Zeta, are very thoroughly killed and dried before being put into service. Very few have ever come back to life. Ford handed the book to Arthur. What is it? said Arthur. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It's a sort of electronic book. It tells you everything you need to know about anything. That's its job. Arthur turned it over nervously in his hands. I like the cover, he said. Don't panic. It's the first helpful or intelligible thing anybody has said to me all day. I'll show you how it works, said Ford. He snatched it from Arthur, who was still holding it as if it were a two-week dead lark, and pulled it out of its cover. You press this button here, you see, and the screen lights up, giving you the index. A screen about three inches by four lit up, and characters began to fl flicker across the surface. 
You want to know about Vogons, so I enter that name. So his fingers tapped some more keys, and there we are. The words Vogon Constructor Fleets flared in green across the screen. Ford pressed a large red button at the bottom of the screen, and words began to undulate across it. At the same time, the book began to speak the entry as well, in a still, quiet, measured voice. In a still, quiet, measured voice. This is what the book said. Vogon Constructor Fleets Here's what to do if you want to get a lift from a Vogon. Forget it. They are one of the most unpleasant races in the galaxy. Not actually evil, but bad-tempered, bureaucratic, officious, and callous. They wouldn't even lift a finger to save their own grandmothers from the ravenous bug-bladder beast of Trahl without orders signed in triplicate, sent in, sent back, queried, lost, found, subjected to public inquiry, lost again, and finally buried in soft peat for three months and recycled as firelighters. The best way to get a drink out of a Vogon is to stick your fingers down his throat, and the best way to irritate him is to feed his grandmother to the ravenous bugbladder beast of Trahl. On now on no account ever allow a Vogon to read poetry at you. Arthur blinked at it. What a strange book. How did we get a lift, then? That's the point. It's out of date now, said Ford, sliding the book back into its cover. I'm doing the field research for the new revised edition, and one of the things I'll have to do is include a bit about how the Vogons now employ Dentrassi cooks, which gives us a rather useful little loophole. A pained expression crossed Arthur's face. But who are the Dentrassi? he said. Great guys, said Ford. They're the best cooks and the best drink mix drinks mixers. And they don't give a wet slap about anything else. And they'll always help hitchhikers aboard, partly because they like the company, but mostly because it annoys the Vogons, which is exactly the sort of thing you need to know if you're an impoverished hitchhiker trying to see the marvels of the universe for less than 30 Alteran dollars a day. And that's my job. Fun, isn't it? Arthur looked lost. It's amazing, he said, and frowned at one of the other mattresses. Unfortunately, I got stuck on the earth for rather longer than I intended, said Ford. Came for a week, got stuck for 15 years. But how did you get there in the first place, then? Easy. I got a lift with a teaser. A teaser? Yeah. Uh, what is a teaser? Teasers are usually rich kids with nothing to do. They cruise around looking for planets which haven't made interstellar contact yet and buzz them. Buzz them? Arthur began to feel that Ford was enjoying making life difficult for him. Yeah, said Ford, they buzz them. They find some isolated spot with very few people around and then land right by some poor unsuspecting soul who no, one's ever, who, who no one is ever going to believe and then strut up and down in front of them wearing silly antennae on their head and making beep beep noises. 
rather childish, really. Ford leant back on the mattress with his hands behind his head and looked infuriatingly pleased with himself. Ford, insisted Arthur, I don't know if this sounds like a silly question, but what am I doing here? Well, you know that, said Ford. I rescued you from the earth. And what's happened to the earth? Ah, it's been demolished. Has it? said Arthur levelly. Yes, it just boiled away into space. Look, said Arthur. I'm a bit upset about that. Ford frowned to himself and seemed to roll the thought around in his mind. Yes, I, I can understand that, he said at last. Understand that, shouted Arthur. Understand that. Ford sprang up. Keep looking at the book, he hissed urgently. What? Don't panic. I'm not panicking. Yes, you are. All right, so I'm panicking. What else is there to do? Look, you just come along with me and have a good time. Galaxy is a fun place. You'll need to have this fish in your ear, though. I beg your pardon, asked Arthur, rather, rather politely, he thought. Ford was holding up a small glass jar, which quite clearly... Ford was holding up a small glass jar, which quite clearly had a small yellow fish wriggling around in it. Arthur blinked at him. He wished there was something simple and recognisable he could grasp hold of. He would have felt safe uh, if, alongside Dentrassi underwear, the piles of Scornshellus mattresses and the man from Beetlejuice holding up a small yellow fish and offering to put it into his ear, he had been able to see just a small packet of cornflakes. But he couldn't, and he didn't feel safe. Suddenly, a violent noise leapt at them from no source that he could identify. He gasped in terror at what sounded like a man trying to gargle whilst fighting off a pack of wolves. Shush, said Ford. Listen, it might be important. Im important? It's the Vogon captain making an announcement on the tannoy. You mean that's how the Vogons talk? Listen! But I can't speak Vogon. You don't need to. Just put this fish in your ear. Ford, with a lightning movement, clapped his hands to Arthur's ear, and he had the sudden sickening sensation of the fish slithering deep into his oral tract. Gasping with horror, he scrabbled at his ear for a second or so, but then slowly turned goggle-eyed with wonder. He was experiencing the oral equivalent of looking at a picture with two black silhouetted faces and suddenly seeing it as a picture of a white candlestick or of looking at a lot of coloured dots on a piece of paper which suddenly resolve themselves into the figure of six and mean that your optician is going to charge you a lot of money for a new pair of glasses. He was still listening to the howling gargles. He knew that only now it had some time... Sorry, he was still listening to the howling gargles. He knew that. Only now it had somehow taken on the semblance of perfectly straightforward English. This is what he heard.
How goggle goggle how goggle how 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 goggle how goggle how how goggle goggle how goggle 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 slower have a good time. Message repeats. This is your captain speaking, so stop whatever you're doing and pay attention. First of all, I can see from our instruments that we have a couple of hitchhikers aboard. Hello, wherever you are. I just want to make it totally clear that you are not at all welcome. I worked hard to get where I am today, and I didn't become captain of a Vogon constructor ship simply so I could turn it into a taxi service for a load of degenerate freeloaders. I have sent out a search party, and as soon as they find you, I will put you off the ship. If you're very lucky, I might read you some of my poetry first. Secondly, we're about to jump into hyperspace for the journey to Barnard's Star. On arrival, we will stay in dock for a 72-hour refit. No one's to leave the ship during that time. I repeat... All planet leave is cancelled. I've just had an unhappy love affair, so I don't see why anybody else should have a good time. Message ends. The noise stopped. Arthur discovered to his embarrassment that he was lying curled up in a small ball on the floor with his arms wrapped around his head. He smiled weakly. Charming man, he said. I wish I had a daughter, so I could forbid her to marry one. You wouldn't need to, said Ford. They've got as much sex appeal as a road accident. No, don't move, he added as Arthur began to uncurl himself. You'd be better prepared for the jump into hyperspace. It's unpleasantly like being drunk. What's so unpleasant about being drunk? You ask a glass of water. Arthur thought about this. Ford, he said. Yeah? What's this fish doing in my ear? It's translating for you. It's a babel fish. Look it up in the book if you like. He tossed over the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and then curled up into a fetal ball to prepare himself for the jump. At that precise moment, the bottom fell out of Arthur's mind. His eyes turned inside out. His feet began to leak out of the top of his head. The room folded flat around him, spun around, shifted out of existence, and left him sliding into his own navel. They were passing through hyperspace. The Babelfish, said the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy quietly, is a small, yellow and leech-like fish, and probably the oddest thing in the universe. It feeds on brainwave energy received not from its own carrier, but from those around it. It absorbs all unconscious metal, uh, mental frequencies from this brainwave energy to nourish itself with. It then excretes into the mind of its carrier a telepathic matrix formed by combining the conscious thought frequencies with nerve single signals picked up from the speech centers of the brain which has supplied them. The practical upshot of all this is that if you stick a babelfish in your ear, you can instantly understand anything said to you in any form of language. The speech patterns you actually hear decode the brainwave matrix which has been fed into your mind by your babelfish. 
Now, it is such a bizarrely improbable coincidence that anything so mind-bogglingly useful could have evolved purely by chance that some thinkers have chosen to see it as final and clinching proof of the non-existence of God. The argument goes something like this. I refuse to prove that I exist, says God, for proof denies faith, and without faith I am nothing. But, says man, the babelfish is a dead giveaway, isn't it? It could not have evolved by chance, it proves you exist, and so therefore by your own arguments you don't. QED. Oh dear, says God, I hadn't thought of that, and promptly vanishes in a puff of logic. Oh, that was easy, says man, and for an encore goes on to prove that black is white and gets himself killed on the next zebra crossing. Most leading theologians claim that this argument is a load of dingo's kidneys, but that didn't stop Ulan Kalufid making a small fortune when he used it as the central theme of his best-selling book. Well, that just about wraps it up for God. Meanwhile, the poor Babelfish, by effectively removing all barriers to communication between different races and cultures, has caused more and bloodier wars than anything else in the history of creation. Arthur let out a low groan. He was horrified to discover that the kick through hyperspace hadn't killed him. He was now six light years from the place that the Earth would have been if it still existed. The Earth. Visions of it swam sickeningly through the, his nauseated mind. There was no way his imagination could feel the impact of the whole Earth having gone. It was, it was too big. He prodded his feelings by thinking that his parents and his sister had gone. No reaction. He thought of all the people he'd been close to. No reaction. Then he thought of a complete stranger he had been standing behind in a queue at the supermarket two days before and felt a sudden stab. The supermarket was gone. Everyone in it was gone. Nelson's column was gone. Nelson's column had gone and there would be no outcry because there was no one left to make an outcry. From now on, Nelson's column only existed in his mind. England only existed in his mind. His mind, stuck here in this dank, smelly, steel-lined spaceship. A wave of claustrophobia closed in on him. England no longer existed. He'd got that. Somehow he'd got it. He tried again. America, he thought, was gone. He couldn't grasp it. He decided to start smaller again. New York had gone. No reaction. He never seriously believed it existed anyway. The dollar, he thought, had sunk forever. Slight tremor there. Every Bogart movie has been wiped he said to himself, and that gave him a nasty knock. McDonald's, he thought. There is no longer any such thing as a McDonald's hamburger. He passed out. When he came round a second later, he found he was sobbing for his mother. He jerked himself violently to his feet. Ford! Ford looked up from where he was sitting in a corner, humming to himself. He always found the actual travelling through space part of travel rather trying. Yeah, he said. 
If you're a researcher on this book thing and you were on Earth, you must have been gathering material on it. Well, I was able to extend the original entry a bit, yes. Let me see what it says in this edition, then. I've got to see it. Yeah, OK. He passed the encyclopedia over again, the, the, the guide over again. Arthur grabbed hold of it and tried to stop his hands shaking. He pressed the entry for the relevant page. The screen flashed and swirled and resolved into a page of print. Arthur stared at it. It doesn't have an entry, he burst out. Ford looked over his shoulder. Yes, it does, he said. Down there, see at the bottom of the screen, just under Eccentrica Columbits, the triple-breasted whore of Eroticon 6. Arthur followed Ford's finger and saw where it was pointing. For a moment, it still didn't register. Then his mind nearly blew up. What? Harmless? Is that all it's got to say? Harmless? One word? Ford shrugged. Well, there are a hundred billion stars in the galaxy and only a limited number of amount of space in the book's microprocessors, he said. No one knew much about Earth, of course. Well, for God's sake, I hope you managed to rectify that a bit. Oh, yes, well, I managed to transmit a new entry off to the editor. He had to trim it a bit, but it's still an improvement. And what does it say now? said Arthur. Mostly harmless, admitted Ford with a slightly embarrassed cough. Mostly harmless, shouted Arthur. What was that noise? hissed Ford. It was me shouting, shouted Arthur. No, shut up, said Ford. I think we're in trouble. You think we're in trouble? Outside the door, there were clear sounds of marching footsteps. The Dendrassi, whispered Arthur. No, those are steel-tipped boots, said Ford. There was a sharp, ringing rap on the door. Then who is it? said Arthur. Well, said Ford, if we're really lucky, it's just the Vogons come to throw us into space. And if we're unlucky? If we're unlucky, said Ford grimly, the captain might be serious in his threat that he's going to read us some of his poetry first. Slurp. I'm getting a numb bottom. Right. Seven. Vogon poetry is, of course, the third worst in the universe. The second worst is that of Asgoths of Kriya. During a recitation by their poet master Gronthos, the flatulent of his poem, Ode to a small lump of green putty I found in my armpit one midsummer morning, four of his audience died of internal hemorrhaging and the president of the Mid-Galactic Arts Nobbling Council survived by gnawing one of his own legs off. Grunthos is reported to have been a bit disappointed by the poem's reception, and was about to embark on a reading of his 12-book epic entitled My Favourite Bath-Time Gurgles, when his own major intestine, in a desperate attempt to save life and civilization, leapt straight up through his neck and throttled his brain. 
The very worst poetry of all perished along with its creator, Paula Nancy Millstone Jennings of Greenbridge, Essex, England, in the destruction of the planet Earth. Prostetnik Vogon Jeltz smiled very slowly. This was done not so much for effect as because he was trying to remember the sequence of muscle movements. He had had a terrible therapeutic, sorry, he had had a terribly therapeutic yell at his prisoners and was now feeling quite relaxed and ready for a little callousness. The prisoners sat in poetry appreciation chairs, strapped in. Vogons suffered no illusions as to the regard their works were generally held in. Their early attempts at composition had been part of a bludgeoning insistence that they had been sorry. Their early attempts at composition had been part of a bludgeoning insistence that they be accepted as a properly evolved and cultured race. But now the only thing that kept them going was sheer bloody-mindedness. The sweat stood out on Ford Prefect's brow and slid round the electrodes strapped to his temples. These were attached to a battery of electronic equipment, imagery intensifiers, rhythmic modulators, alliterative residulators and simile dumpers, all designed to heighten the experience of the poem and make sure that not a single nuance of the poet's thought was lost. Arthur Dent sat and quivered. He had no idea what he was in for, but he knew that he hadn't liked anything that had happened so far and didn't think things were likely to change. The Vogon began to read a fetid little passage of his own devising. Oh, freckled grunt bugly, he began. Spasms racked Ford's body. This was worse than even he was prepared for. Thy mercurations are to me as purple camel blotchets on a lurking bee. <laughs> went Ford Prefect, wrenching his head back as lumps of pain thumped through it. He could dimly see beside him Arthur lolling and rolling in his seat. He clenched his teeth. Group, I implore thee, continued the merciless Vogon, my fruiting turning drones. His voice was rising to a horrible pitch of impassioned stridency, and hoopteously drangle me with crinkly bindlewurdles, or I will rend thee in the gobbles with my blurgle crunching. You see if I don't. cried Ford Prefect, and threw one final spasm as the electronic enhancement of the last line caught him full blast across the temples. He went limp. Arthur lolled. Now, earthlings, whirred the Vogon. He didn't know that Ford Prefect was, in fact, from a small planet somewhere in the vicinity of Beetlejuice, and he wouldn't have cared if he had. I present you with a simple choice. Either die in the vacuum of space, or... He paused for melodramatic effect. Tell me how good you think my poem was. 
He threw himself backwards into a huge leathery bat-shaped seat and watched them. He did the smile again. Ford was rasping for breath. He rolled his dusty tongue around his parched mouth and moaned. Arthur said brightly, Actually, I quite liked it. Ford turned and gaped. Here was an approach that he had simply not had simply not occurred to him. The Vogon raised a surprised eyebrow that effectively obscured his nose and was therefore no bad thing. Oh, good, he whirred in considerable astonishment. Oh, oh yes, said Arthur. I, I, I thought that some of the metaphysical imagery was, was really particularly effective. Ford continued to stare at him, slowly organising his thoughts around this totally new concept. Were they really going to be able to bareface their way out of this? Yes, do continue, invited the Vogon. Oh, uh, and uh, interesting rhythmic devices too, continued Arthur, which seemed to counterpoint the, um, the, uh, he floundered. Ford leapt to his rescue, hazarding, counterpoint the surrealism of the underlying metaphor of the, uh, uh, he floundered too, but Arthur was ready again. Humanity of the Vogonity hissed forward at him. Ah, uh, uh, yes, Vagonity, sorry, uh, of the poet's compassionate soul. Arthur felt he was on the home stretch now, which contrives through the medium of the verse structures to sublimate this, transcend that, and come to terms with the fundamental dichotomies of the other. He was reaching a triumphant crescendo, and one is left with a profound and, and vivid insight into... into... Uh, which suddenly gave out on him and Ford leapt in with the coup de grace. Into whatever the poem was about, he yelled, out of the corner of his mouth. Well done, Arthur. That was very good. The Vogon perused them. For a moment, his embittered racial soul had been touched. But he thought, no. Too little, too late. His voice took on the quality of a cat snagging brushed nylon. So, what you're saying is that I write poetry because underneath my mean, callous, heartless exterior, I really just want to be loved. Pause. Is that right? Ford laughed a nervous laugh. Well, I, I mean, yes, he said. Don't, don't we all deep down know? Uh... The Vogon stood up. No, well, you're completely wrong, he said. I just write poetry to throw my mean, callous, heartless exterior into sharp relief. I'm going to throw you off the ship anyway. God, take the prisoners to number three airlock and throw them out. What? shouted Ford. A huge young Vogon guard stepped forward and yanked them out of their straps with his huge blubbery arms. You can't throw us into space, yelled Ford. We're trying to write a book. Resistance is useless, shouted the Vogon guard back at him. It was the first phrase he'd learnt when he joined the Vogon guard corps. 
The captain watched with detached amusement and then turned away. Arthur stared around him wildly. I don't want to die now, he yelled. I've still got a headache. I don't want to go to heaven with a headache. I'd be all cross and I wouldn't enjoy it. The guard grasped them both firmly around the neck and bowing deferentially towards the captain's back, hoiks them both protesting out of the fridge, out of the fridge, out of the bridge. The steel door closed and the captain was on his own again. He hummed quietly and mused to himself, lightly fingering his notebook of verses. Hmm, he said. Counterpoint the surrealism of the underlying metaphor. He considered this for a moment and then closed the book with a grim smile. Death's too good for them, he said. The long, steel-lined corridor echoed to the feeble struggles of the two humanoids clamped firmly under rubbery Vogon armpits. This, this is great, spluttered Arthur. This is really terrific. Let go of me, you brute. The Vogon guard dragged them on. Don't you worry, said Ford. I I'll think of something. He didn't sound hopeful. Resistance is useless, bellowed the guard. Just don't say things like that, stammered Ford. How can anyone maintain a positive mental attitude if you're saying things like that? My God, complained Arthur. You're talking about a positive mental attitude and you haven't even had your planet demolished today. I woke up this morning and thought I'd have a nice relaxed day, do a bit of reading, brush the dog, and now it's just after four in the afternoon and I'm already being thrown out of an alien spaceship six light years from the smoking remains of the Earth. He spluttered and gurgled as the Vogon tightened his grip. All right, said Ford, just stop panicking. Who said anything about panicking? snapped Arthur. This is still just a culture shock. You wait till I've settled down into the situation and found my bearings. Then I'll start panicking. Arthur, you're getting hysterical. Shut up. Ford tried desperately to think, but was interrupted by the guard shouting again. Resistance is useless. And you can shut up as well, snapped Ford. Resistance is useless. Oh, give it a rest, said Ford. He twisted his head until he was looking straight up into his captor's face. A thought struck him. Do you really enjoy this sort of thing? He asked suddenly. The Vogon stopped dead and a look of immense stupidity seeped slowly over his face. Enjoy, he boomed. What do you mean? What I mean, said Ford, is does it give you a fully satisfying life? Stomping around, shouting, pushing people out of spaceships. The Vogon stared up at the low steel ceiling and his eyebrows almost rolled over each other. His mouth slacked. Finally, he said, Well, the hours are good. They'd have to be agreed Ford. Arthur twisted his head around to look at Ford. Ford, what are you doing? he asked in an amazed whisper. Oh, just trying to take an interest in the world around me, okay? he said. So, the hours are pretty good then, he resumed. 
The Vogon stared down at him as sluggish thoughts moiled around in the murky depths. Yeah, he said. But now you come to mention it, most of the actual minutes are pretty lousy. Except, he thought again, which required looking at the ceiling. Except some of the shouting I quite like. He refilled his lungs and bellowed, Resistance is... Yes, sure, sure, yes, interrupted Ford hurriedly. You're good at that, I can tell. But if it's mostly lousy, he said, slowly giving the words time to reach their mark, then why do you do it? What is it? The girls? The leather? The machismo? Or do you just find that coming to terms with the mindless tedium of it all presents just an interesting challenge. Arthur looked backwards and forwards between them in utter bafflement. Uh, said the guard. Uh, uh, oh, I don't know. I just think it's sort of, I just sort of, I'd sort of do it, really. My aunt said that a spaceship guard was a good career for a young Vogon. You know, the uniform, the low-slung stun-ray holster, the mindless tedium. There you are, said Arthur. Sorry, there you are, Arthur, said Ford, with the air of someone reaching the conclusion of his argument. You think you've got problems. Arthur rather thought that he had. Apart from the unpleasant business with his home planet and the Vogon guard had... No, sorry. Apart from the unpleasant business with his home planet, the Vogon guard had half-throttled him already, and he didn't like the sound of being thrown into space very much. Try and understand his problem, insisted Ford. Here he is, poor lad. His entire life's work is stamping around, throwing people off spaceships. And shouting, added the guard. And shouting, sure said Ford, patting the blubbery arm cramped, clamped around his neck in friendly condescension. And he doesn't even know why he means. Arthur agreed. Sorry. Arthur agreed that this was indeed very sad. He did this with a small, feeble gesture, because he was currently too asphyxiated to speak. Deep rumblings of bemusement came from the guard. Well, how you put it like now, I suppose. Good lad, encouraged Ford. Well, all right, went on the rumblings. So what's the alternative? Well, said Ford, brightly but slowly. Stop doing it, of course. Tell them, he went on, you're not going to do it any more. He felt he ought to add something to that, but for the moment the guards seemed to have his mind occupied pondering that much. Um, said the guard. Um, well, that doesn't sound too great to me. Ford suddenly felt the moment slipping away. No, 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 wait a minute, he said. That's just the start, you see. There's more to it than that, you see. But at that moment, the guard renewed his grip and continued his original purpose of lugging his prisoners to the airlock. He was obviously quite touched. 
Now, if uh, I think if it's all the same to you, he said, I better get on getting with getting you both shoved into this airlock and, and then go and get on with some other bits of shouting I've got to do. It wasn't all the same to Ford Prefect at all. Come on now, but but look, he said, less slowly, less brightly. <laughs> said Arthur, without any clear inflection. But hang on, pursued Ford. There's music and art and, and things to tell you about. <laughs> Resistance is useless, bellowed the guard, and then added, you see, if I keep it up, I can eventually get promoted to senior shouting officer. And there aren't usually many vacancies for non-shouting and non-pushing people about officers. So I think I better stick to what I know. They'd now reached the airlock. A large circular steel hatchway of massive strength and weight let into the inner skin of the aircraft of the craft. The guard operated a control and the hatchway swung smoothly open. But thanks for taking an interest, said the Vogon guard. Bye now. He flung Ford and Arthur through the hatchway into the small chamber within. Arthur lay panting for breath. Ford scrambled around and flung his shoulder uselessly against the reclosing hatchway. But but listen, but there's a whole world you don't know anything about. Here, here how about this? Desperately, he grabbed for the only bit of culture he knew offhand. He hummed the first bar of Beethoven's Fifth. Da-da-da-dum! Doesn't that stir anything in you? No, said the guard, not really, but I'll mention it to me aunt. If he said anything further after that, it was lost. The hatchway sealed itself tight, and all around was lost bar the faint distant hum of the ship's engines. They were in a brightly polished cylindrical chamber, about six feet in diameter and ten feet long. Ford looked around it, panting. Potentially bright lad, I thought, he said, and slumped against the curved wall. Arthur was still lying in the curve of the floor where he had fallen. He didn't look up. He just lay, panting. We're trapped now, aren't we? Yes, said Ford. We're trapped. Well, didn't you think of anything? I thought you said you were going to think of something. Perhaps you thought of something and I didn't notice. Oh, yes, I thought of something, panted Ford. Arthur looked up expectantly. But, unfortunately, continued Ford, it rather involved being on the other side of this airtight hatchway. He kicked the hatch through which they'd just been thrown. But it was a good idea, was it? Oh, yes, very neat. What was it? Well, I hadn't worked out the details yet. <laughs> Not much point, really, is there? So, uh, what happens next? Oh, well, the hatchway in front of us will open automatically in a few moments, and we will shoot out into deep space, I expect, and asphyxiate. If you take a lungful of air with you, you can last for up to 30 seconds, of course, said Ford. He stuck his hands behind his back, raised his eyebrows, and started to hum an old Beetlejuicean battle hymn. To Arthur's eyes, he suddenly looked very alien. So, this is it, said Arthur. 
We are going to die. Yes, said Ford. Except, no, wait a minute. He suddenly lunged across the chamber at something behind Arthur's line of vision. What's this switch? he cried. What? Where? cried Arthur, twisting around. No, I was only fooling, said Ford. We are going to die after all. He slumped against the wall and carried on the tune from where he'd left off. You know, said Arthur, it's at times like this, when I'm trapped in a Vogon airlock with a man from Beetlejuice and about to die of asphyxiation in deep space, that I really wish that I'd listened to what my mother told me when I was young. Why? What did she tell you? I don't know. I didn't listen. Oh, Ford carried on humming. This is terrific, Arthur thought to himself. Nelson's column has gone, MacDonald's have gone. All that's left is me and the words mostly harmless. And any second now, that will be all that's left. The words mostly harmless. And yesterday, the planet seemed to be going so well. A motor word, a slight hiss built into a deafening roar of rushing air as the outer hatchway opened onto an empty blackness studded with tiny, impossibly bright points of light. Ford and Arthur popped out into space like corks from a toy gun. Right. Twenty past ten, shall we call it a day? And carry on tomorrow. Yes? Is that a deal? Do we like that? Do we like that? Do we like that? Do we like that? No one's saying anything. <laughs> okay. Yes, uh, I'm going to take a break. My throat is kind of dry after speaking for over an hour. Uh, thank you so much for being around for this evening's reading. I will carry on tomorrow at the same time. Um, it will be uh, around nine o'clock. So if you guys can make sure you're here in good time, we can crack on straight away. Thank you so much for your company. Again, I really, 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 really appreciate it. Uh, and um, see you tomorrow at uh, around nine o'clock Danish time, uh, eight o'clock UK time. Thanks very much, people. Do me a favor. Um, kind of uh, sponsoring me uh, in terms of giving me some publicity. We've got Tobbers and both uh, You'll Never Walk Alone, the pub. Uh, make sure you make use of their facilities, perhaps even order some beer to drink whilst you're listening to me tomorrow or some cake to munch on whilst we continue our adventures in space. Um, look after yourselves, take care of yourselves and see you tomorrow, same time. Bye-bye, everyone. Thanks a lot. Oh, and share. Share this everywhere. Let's get as many people as possible involved. Thanks very much, guys. See you.